a weirdo practice that, Seymour? I don't know. I think it's some kind of fly trap, but I haven't been able to identify it in any of my books. I gave it my own name, though. I call it an Audrey II. After me? I hope you don't mind. On the 23rd day of the month of September, in an early year of this decade, of our own, the human race not so suddenly encountered an informative film podcast hosted by three old friends. <laughs> wow, pretty cool! <laughs> and this hopefully educational episode surfaced, as such indie podcasts often do, in the seemingly most common and likely of places. The Black Case Diaries. Hi, I'm Robin. I'm Marcy. And I'm Adam. Welcome back to the Black Case Diaries cassettes. (laughs) It's September 23rd, which only means one thing. Just one thing. That it's Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) It's time to talk about Little Shop of Horrors. Hell yeah. Finally. This is year three of our show, and we finally get to talk about this movie. About this mean green mother. Season 75. Well, it's that time of year again. The temperature outside is dropping, spirit Halloween stores are taking over vacant retail spaces, and the evening air is starting to smell like wood smoke. Summer's end has come, and autumn is here. Yes. Man, oh man. Spirit Halloween. Oh, yes. So strange. I thought, what are some things that are just undeniably autumn? Yes. 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 Spirit Halloween. Mm -hmm. Yes. Nice little banner over the... Over the Best Buy sign. Yeah. Gone. <laughs> Over the yep. old Bath and Body yep. Works, yep. we see. Yep. Robin and I already had hot chocolate, so, yes. you know, uh-huh. getting ready several, for it. Several cups of hot <laughs> chocolate. Yes. Several pints of hot chocolate. <laughs> and since the end of September is fast approaching, we thought it was the perfect time to talk about something a little horrifying. Mm. In December of 1986, a strange and mysterious plant appeared on theater screens across America. Cared for by a soft-spoken man named Seymour, the botanical oddity quickly seized the attention of audiences throughout the country. The only problem was that the plant didn't feed on sunshine and water, but instead craved human blood. Oh, no. no. Must be blood. (laughs) Must be fresh. Little Shop of Horrors is not your average Hollywood musical film. It's darkly funny, with the gritty texture of the off-Broadway production on which it was based. While musicals like The Wizard of Oz and The Sound of Music feature brightly colored locations and sweeping cinematography, Little Shop of Horrors takes place on the bleak and infamous street called Skid Row and follows a protagonist that feeds people to an evil plant from outer space. Oof, madness. Absolute madness. <laughs> a little different, maybe. Yeah. 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 So, I'm off not the, in Kansas anymore. Off the beaten path a bit. <laughs> this wonderfully odd film appeals to the strangeness in all of us and gives a biting commentary, pun intended, hmm. on human nature. Not to mention, it's absolutely packed with hilarious comedic performances, incredible songs, and mind-blowing special effects. Ooh. It's unbelievable oh, how good God. the effects are in this I movie. I freaking love it. <laughs> So, let's head back to an early year in a decade not too long before our own to explore the seemingly innocent and unlikely origin of the greatest threat to human existence in Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, man. You guys excited to talk about Little Shop of Horrors? I am so excited. I've been waiting. This is such a good movie. To me, this is is the kind of movie I put it on, and I'm like, oh, I'm just only going to watch 
because we were doing research. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to put it on. I'll just watch. Oh, God. It's like it's, it's like I'm a little kid. You yeah. Know? You put it on. I'm just like glued to the screen. Yeah. I can't look Sucks away. Sucks you in. You're Audrey, too, and that's <sighs> blood. And you just. <laughs> <laughs> well, before Little Shop of Horrors became a movie musical, it was a stage musical. And before it was a stage musical, it was a movie. Quite. If that makes sense. You, you, did you follow there? <laughs> so let's talk about the origins of this odd story and how it went from movie to musical to movie musical. In the late 1950s, director Roger Corman started experimenting with horror comedy films. A studio manager that was friends with Corman told him that a film was about to wrap with no projects on deck. This gave Corman a funny idea and he decided to give himself a unique challenge. He asked the manager to leave up the sets from the previous movie so he could come in and shoot another film in only two days. <laughs> two oh my gosh. days. Dang. Corman and screenwriter Charles B. Griffith brainstormed for a day and developed the general plot of a horror-slash-comedy B-movie about a man-eating plant. Griffith then spent about two weeks writing the screenplay before the film began production, with a budget between 15000 and 22500 Absolute pennies. Yes. That is practically nothing. Yeah. They doesn't have to build a new set. I got a week. Let's just, yeah. let's just throw yeah. a movie together. Probably just paid the actors and that was it. I, yeah. They rehearsed Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, yes. filmed Thursday, Friday. Yep. Wow. Insanity. <laughs> For years, rumors circulated that Corman shot the film on the infamous two-day deadline because of a bet. Others speculated that he wanted to throw together one last low-budget film before a new rule went into effect which would require filmmakers to pay actors residuals for their performances after films had been released. Corman has never confirmed this and says it was more of a joke. He did it to see if it was possible. The movie turned out to be a joke in more ways than one. First of all, audiences found the film to be hilarious, <laughs> including a cameo appearance from rising star Jack Nicholson as a masochist. <laughs> I mean, fitting. Yeah, like he perfect. For yeah, the role. so good. Yeah. <laughs> the funny part about him being in this movie is that every time anybody released it or talked about it years later, yeah. they would say starring Jack Nicholson. He really six he minutes. Was, it, yeah, it's yeah. really yeah. he's not. I have seen versions of the VHS where it's his picture on the front, like wow. he is the star of the movie. What. The the two-day filming schedule cemented the film in B-movie history, and it was widely regarded as one of Hollywood's most notorious jokes. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. But as you might have guessed, the influence of the film didn't stop there. For years, the film was replayed on late-night TV shows, which is how a young teenager named Howard Ashman first saw it. Oh, getting the cogs turning. (laughs) Yeah, look at that. Have you guys ever seen this movie? I have seen parts Parts. of it. Yeah, I've definitely seen the Jack Nicholson scene. God, yes. This one I have not seen. No. Mm -mm. In 1979, Howard Ashman wrote and directed a musical called God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater with musician Alan Menken. It was their first collaboration. 
The musical was a hit at the WPA Theater, where it premiered, but it hadn't done well outside of those productions. Ashman wanted their next project to be fun, and remembered the offbeat silliness of Little Shop of Horrors. The next time the film aired on TV, Ashman taped it, and Mencken immediately saw the musical potential for the story. He said that they were really sad because their play wasn't doing well. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, don't worry, the next one we do, it's going to be really fun. Yeah. I'll think of something. And he remembered that movie, and he remembered that when he was a teenager, he wrote this terrible play about a man that was in love with a plant. And he said, you know, I just, I inadvertently ripped off Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> so, so I thought, you know, what I should do is I should like actually rip off Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. Just yes. go full in. Yeah. And Alan Menken hadn't seen the movie. So, yeah. Ah. He was like, they were, they got lucky. It showed on TV and they taped it. And he was like, I, immediately the wheels were turning. 60s music, you know, <laughs> I, I can hear, I can hear this, the soundtrack. I know, yeah. I know what this should sound like. And we shall call it the tiny store of scary things. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) According to Kyle Rennick, then producing director of the WPA Theater, where Little Shop of Horrors would eventually premiere, it took the theater a year to secure the rights to the film and eight months for Ashman and Mencken to write the musical. (laughs) They Hmm. said it was more like eight weeks, but Uh. I I think it (laughs) it took eight months for them to Get in the groove. And then mm-hmm. once they were in the grove, it took about uh-huh. eight weeks. Yeah. 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 Not quite the two days, huh? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, and it wasn't like the two weeks. It's- <laughs> yeah. Ashman wrote the book and lyrics while Mencken composed the music. Mencken said, I decided that I wanted the musical approach to come from some early 1960s music. The girl group sound. It has a very dark, menacing ring. You can almost hear whips and chains in the background. There were two ponytailed teenagers in the movie, and we decided to turn them into a black trio that functions as a Greek chorus, commenting on the action. It fits so weirdly well. It feels out of place, almost, but somehow mm-hmm. isn't. To me, it's they're telling the story, and I yeah. feel like they connect with the audience more than anybody else right. in the yeah. whole movie. Right. I love that they're in this movie, and I think the movie would not work at all without them. It's wonderful that they have this unifying sound. Yeah throughout yeah. that connects all of the songs and mm-hmm. it connects all of the scenes together. I love that they're there the whole time. Yep. Yes. Although the plot was similar, Ashman made major changes to the story. He cut out characters and changed the ending. Every death in the original movie was accidental, while Ashman's version showed the protagonist, Seymour, killing people and feeding them to a plant. <laughs> the subject matter may seem gruesome, but because of the humor in the show, audiences didn't seem to mind. It's, no. It's kind of absurd <laughs> what's yeah. happening. You, can, you just, you yeah. know, you don't have to worry about suspending your disbelief because it's yeah. just, all, it does it for you. <laughs> yeah. Probably helped that they didn't use anything like blood, like it wasn't yeah. blood, like the play isn't going to have... Yeah. They're yeah. not going to be gushing blood on yeah. the stage. It's not like an audience <laughs> participation thing where yeah. you got covered oh. in blood or anything. Oh, no. no. It was like a red piece of fabric. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, well, here's all the blood you know, <laughs> yeah. on yeah. the stage. And For Audrey too, the theater hired Martin Robinson, a Muppet performer known for portraying Snuffleupagus on Sesame Street. Aha, go to the pros. There. Yeah. Yes. Apparently, Little Shop of Horrors was Robinson's favorite film, 
and he had been dreaming of developing the plant for years. He would finally get his chance. Dude, wow. Freaking That's perfect. super awesome. <laughs> what are the odds? Yeah. In May of 1982, Little Shop of Horrors opened the WPA Theater to rave reviews. It quickly became a crowd favorite, selling out almost every show. After a couple of months, the WPA was approached by at least 26 different producers that wanted to move the show to Broadway. Eventually, it opened at the Orpheum Theater, where it ran for 2,209 performances. Snap. And this, Yeah. Wow. And this is all according to Playbill. Yeah. Wow. You know, developing a play or a musical, your greatest aspiration or, you know, your end goal is probably like, oh, Broadway is like the top dog. Yeah. Like, wouldn't that be so cool? Yeah. And we're doing this little musical over here. It's fine. It's going to be great. But yeah. wouldn't it be so cool to get to Broadway? And then they're like, hey. Why don't you come over here and, to Broadway? And you know what's crazy about it, too, is that they had their choice of producers. Right. They yeah. didn't just have to go with the first person that yeah. liked the show. As the musical's popularity continued, talks of a major motion picture began to emerge. Producer David Geffen, who helped bring the show to Broadway, signed on to produce a film adaptation of the play. Oh, right. For those of you stragglers out there who have yet to see this movie i mean it took me a while to see it but it's you streaming know. on hbo max aha here's a synopsis for you seymour krelborn is a young assistant at a struggling flower shop in manhattan he pines after his beautiful co-worker audrey as they both dream of one day breaking free of their financial burdens and escaping skid row one day seymour witnesses a total eclipse of the sun and discovers a very strange and unusual plant that he names Audrey II. Just when Seymour's boss is about to close the shop for good, the exotic plant attracts a great deal of attention to the store, allowing it to stay open. As Seymour cares for the plant, he soon discovers that the only way to make it grow is to feed it human flesh. Uh-oh! <gasps> bum, bum, bum! <laughs> Although he doesn't initially want to hurt anyone, Seymour must choose between his morals and his only chance at finding a way out of Skid Row and starting a new life. Oh, man. Sounds like a tough one. Yeah. (laughs) Don't worry. There's almost no consequences to his actions. (laughs) Yeah. So be relieved in that. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So upbeat. (laughs) I mean, if you're not sold on that, the absurdity of this, <laughs> then, oh man, I don't know what's up with you because this is just great. <laughs> I mean, we love the weirder things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the three of us really get a kick out of the some of the weirder things yeah. out there, and this some is people, one of them. Some people like the finer things in life. Yeah. yeah. We like the you weirder know? things. And that's yeah. A, and that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Need a balance. But try this anyway. <laughs> yeah. Just give it a try. Yeah. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the making of this movie. Years after producing the Broadway musical and the feature film, David Geffen admitted that he initially thought that a musical version of the 1960 film, Little Shop of Horrors, was possibly the worst idea he had ever heard. (laughs) Of course, audiences disagreed as the show was an undeniable commercial and critical success. Yeah, it won a lot of awards. <laughs> yeah. Got him. So good. Geffen's original plan for the film was not to surpass a $6 million budget 
and have Steven Spielberg as a producer with Martin Scorsese as the film's director. Oh my goodness. This plan, of course, never came to pass. <laughs> imagine. What a different movie it would be. Yes, wow. and I imagine yes. it would have been much bloodier. Yeah. Oh, Scorsese yeah. Was the oh, yeah. The film would eventually reach an estimated budget of about $25 million. Oh, uh, it exceeded just, a bit there. Yeah, just a smidge. Yeah. <laughs> just a smidge over six. Oh, boy. Instead of Martin Scorsese as a director, Geffen approached puppet master Frank Oz. You know, every season we have to talk about yeah. some Muppet person at some point e- in time. Exactly. We're yeah. very big on that. You can't here. escape it. Yeah. yeah. Oz had previously co directed The Dark Crystal with Jim Henson and just recently finished directing his first Muppet film, Muppets Take Manhattan. Yeah, both great movies. Uh, yes. Yes. Initially, Oz wanted to turn down the project as he was unsure how to make it work. It was actually the concept of the three women that acted as a Greek chorus narrating the story on stage that convinced him to take the job. He felt like they were the key to making the story flow. Absolutely. Yeah, I think maybe he was like, that sounds a bit complicated. I'm not really sure if I can make it work. Mm-hmm. And then he watched it and said, okay, thank you for giving me this device that allows me to make yeah, this work. Yeah, yes. <laughs> make all these separate things connect somehow. Yeah, he's like, oh, you know what? Actually, this was written by people who were really smart and know how to tell stories really well. So actually, I don't have to to worry about that problem you know that, that I had. Yeah. yeah. You mean they have the perfect device already in? Yeah. 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 And it's good people. <laughs> All right. Where do I sign? <laughs> Where do I sign? <laughs> Frank Oz started the directing process by storyboarding almost every scene, especially musical numbers with Audrey 2. This way, he could figure out exactly how big the sets needed to be and how to work around the limitations of the plant. Each scene averages about 30 takes, and sometimes the takes would last only a few seconds. Oh my. Yeah. I imagine that this was very tedious and yes. <laughs> very hard. Yes. He was the perfect oh, director yeah. for this because he knew exactly how this kind of stuff worked. Mm-hmm. He did puppets all the time. Mm-hmm. And so he actually understood, like, okay, well, if we're going to have a choreographed dance number with a gigantic plant operated yes. by 60 people, we're going to need to <laughs> figure out. Exactly what the plant's doing. You know, yes. it needs to be, we need to know exactly mm-hmm. how big the room needs to mm-hmm. be, where the actors need to be standing. Yes. And also, they need to be moving to the beat of a song mm-hmm. that they're lip syncing to. Mm-hmm. And so they need to know how many steps they can take, when yep. they should, you know, yep. walk to the music. Very complicated. Mm-hmm. How fast the mouth can make these movements <laughs> of oh my these gosh. words. Yes. <laughs> Oz wanted the film to flow seamlessly between scenes. One way he achieved this was by planning out each scene's transition. If you watch the movie carefully, you will notice how well the transitions fit together. It's awesome. It's, uh, yeah, it's incredible. I think one of my favorites, I think my favorite transition in the Mm -hmm. movie is when it's from the dentist's song to the next scene where he says, and spit, and someone spits and then there's just a stream of water that goes into the next scene, and you're just yes. in, you're in the next scene. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I love that. It's just mm-hmm. seamless. That and the one at the end of suddenly Seymour, where they have this beautiful sun behind them that transitions into this yellow door. Yes. It's just perfect. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely beautiful. 
In many scenes, Oz utilized tight angles and close-ups to help the audience connect with the main characters. He refrained from using wide shots because he felt like they made the setting look grand and very Hollywood. He said it was also because it kind of made him feel like he was showing everybody everything he had mm-hmm. too quickly. <laughs> yeah. He's like, it's not actually that big of a set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> I don't want to give you guys like, too much information. Yeah, you're not going to want to explore if you've seen it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Howard Ashman stayed with the project to write the screenplay for the film and also penned additional lyrics. When Frank Oz was planning scenes for the film, Ashman was there to help him through the process. Ashman told Oz that it wasn't just the music that had rhythm, but there was a rhythm to his dialogue as well. Oz said that advice was incredibly helpful. Yeah, Howard Ashman was such a creative force and this is his baby mm-hmm. and he really was able to just come into the project and be like kind of directing the director a little bit <laughs> yeah because <laughs> frank oz had nothing but good say- things to say about him mm-hmm. talking about you know that collaboration process being so easy because you know howard ashman directed the musical mm-hmm. so he was also a director he just wasn't yeah. a film director right ashman also made sure that oz understood that the musical wasn't meant to be subtle Ashman and Mencken's songs didn't ease the audience into the music. The music just starts, and the viewer either accepts it or they don't. The film is unapologetic in every aspect. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's never a time in this movie where they're like, we're really sorry, this next scene's really yeah. weird. You can look away if you want. Like, it's like, <laughs> like we're going to start yeah. a song if it's okay if with you okay guys. If it's okay with you guys. Because if you guys, do you guys know what we're talking about when we say you watch a movie yeah. and suddenly somebody is like, <laughs> yeah. I feel a song coming on. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. You've heard that. You've heard oh, that yeah. sentence before. Yeah. Because it's like you, the music kind of starts yeah. coming in. Yeah. We the person it. gets up and moves. Yeah, and... they look out a window or yeah. something. And so you get the feeling, okay, a song's about okay. to happen. And in this musical, it's like, that doesn't happen. Songs no. just start. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like, Before you even you know go. what's happening, we're on yeah. line two of the song. <laughs> the entire film was shot over six months at Pinewood Studios in the UK on the 007 stage. Ooh. Hell yeah. Yeah. Oz wanted the movie to be a strange hybrid of stage musical and film. So he knew they would have to create their own universe and environment for the story to take place. Many films are concerned with realism, making their environments look as close as possible to real-world situations. In Little Shop of Horrors, everything is real to the characters, and whether or not the sets and backgrounds look realistic to the audience is immaterial. That being said, Audrey 2 is as real as it gets. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. So when I say that, what I'm what I mean is that, you know, there are painted suns there are painted mm-hmm. trees mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. you know things in the background that that look very play very yeah set it's and very stage right <laughs> and it's not you're not supposed to watch it and think wow this looks so real you know <laughs> focus on the acting the emotions of the characters mm-hmm. and, and the story is real just not in that sense it's real in a much deeper more personal sense when you're watching it because you just get really attached to the characters and the moments and the story Roy Walker was the production designer for Little Shop and is also known for The Shining as well. Ooh. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. It took him and his team three months to build a Skid Row replica, 
Walker created three different sets for the flower shop in the film. One set was for the people to act in alone. Another set was for people to act in with the plant. And the third set was specifically for the finale, when Audrey 2 destroys the store. Wow. It's a lot of set building. Yeah, it's a lot of set building. It's three sets that are identical, that yeah. are, but they're all Yeesh. different purposes. Yikes. <laughs> I feel like that's so hard. I mean, making three, you know, a thing three times. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you're like, oh my God. You gotta get every detail right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In order to make the set look as American as possible, Walker gathered up huge containers with trash cans to place in the street corners of Skid Row. That's cool. What are you trying to say? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Just it, they had to be American-looking trash cans. Yes. Because yeah. yes. they, they were in the UK. In UK. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> the key to the Little Shop of Horrors was Audrey, too, and having a director with puppet experience was vital for production. Oz had previous experience working with designer Lyle Conway in Jim Henson's Creature Shop. Lyle was the mastermind behind Audrey, too. According to Frank Oz, it took Conway and his team nine months to prepare the plants for the shoot and they continued to work on them even during production. Wow. Oh, wow. Dang. it's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> Perfectionist. Oh, yeah. Oz said that Lyle researched extensively about plants in order to create the beautiful textures and colors within Audrey too. At the end of production, he and his team had created 15,000 handmade leaves, 20,000 feet of vine, and 11.5 miles of cable for all the plants combined. Oh, my Good grief. That was so much. So much stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? It paid off because Audrey 2 is beautiful. Yeah, seriously. Oh my gosh. Yeah, to me, Audrey 2, it's so real. Yes. Mm-hmm. It just feels so real and looks real. And, and Rick Moranis even said he, he just forgot sometimes yeah. that it wasn't a person <laughs> yeah. that he was acting with because it just really felt like it had a mind of its own. Yeah. yeah. Conway created seven different sizes of Audrey 2. And some performed different actions for the movie. With each size, more people had to operate the plant. When the plant was small, only two or three people needed to operate it. But by the end of the film, about 60 people stood in a tank underneath the massive plant, looking at monitors as they operated its movement. Dude, <laughs> what, what an incredible team. Mm. Oh yeah! Like sixty people to coordinate. Yes. So precisely working in tandem to bring something yes. to life like that—it's craziness, man. You could see in the in the special features they show you one scene where you see a bunch of the people underneath, and you, and it just looks like the wildest thing. Yeah. Levers and pulleys and lines. <laughs> and you've got vines everywhere, and they're yeah. just like very meticulously like doing mm-hmm. things on beat at the same time and yeah oh my, i can't imagine no oh. wonder they had to do at least 30 takes each time yeah <laughs> one person even stood inside the plant's mouth to make it move while brian henson was camouflaged in a suit of vines and leaves as he helped operate the head what yes there yeah. was one at one point he was the person making the mouth go up and down oh man <laughs> i need to watch the movie and see if you can find it i know i've tried i've tried we, to find uh, him camouflage yeah. wearing a suit of vine yeah they oh, said man. oh my gosh oh brian henson what a hero yeah honestly. man in order to make vines that would bend seamlessly without wearing down the filmmakers had to approach the atomic energy institute to research the best metal core to use it had to be sturdy enough to to like lift and move properly. Yep. Yeah. But it had to wiggle like it mm-hmm. was still a plant. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. 
and they had to be able to bend it over and over and over again. Right. Yes, and for it to it not breaking. wear down yeah. and yeah. break in the middle. Oh, mm-hmm. gosh. No, what a nightmare that would have been. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're on like the <gasps> 20, 29th take and you're like, oh, my gosh, we almost got it. We got it. it. <laughs> like days delay to fix that. Yeah. Oh, my God. So if you didn't know. Just in case you weren't listening. <laughs> yeah. There are a few songs in this. Ah, yes. What? A few. It is, in fact, a musical movie. Mm, the best kind. As we mentioned before, Little Shop of Horrors features music by Alan Menken with lyrics by Howard Ashman. Composer Miles Goodman wrote the score for the feature film. Goodman was a prolific composer who wrote music for films like A Muppet Christmas Carol and Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. You know, I included that second one specifically for the people of the Tape Store podcast, if you're listening, Uh, that know how much they like that movie. Name drop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you see, that's the thing. Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit is such a fun movie. Mm -hmm. Muppet Christmas Carol. I went through his IMDb page, Footloose. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Now I got it. Now I get it. Now I get it. He's he's the best. Yeah. (laughs) In this film, he used the foreboding sounds of organ music in his theme for Audrey 2. Yeah. And it fits really well. Yeah. Despite it being such an upbeat musical, mm-hmm. you get those little bits of like, Audrey 2 is like some scary stuff going yes. on. Yes. You know, this is a monster we're talking mm-hmm. about I right am, here. Yeah. I, rewatching it, I thought, you know, I really am scared of Audrey 2. Like, yeah, what, yeah. You know, watching those scenes and just the suspense of... You know, the plant trying to eat people and almost in the getting to eat people. Yeah. It is really suspenseful and it is, there is a lot of horror elements to this movie. So, and it's funny to me that it's organ music, something that we normally connect (laughs) with a church. Yeah. Something religious and something reverent. And And it happens at the beginning of this movie, just at the prologue, as we're about to talk about, we hear organ music. So, we're going to talk about the songs. We're just going to go right through them and talk about some things that happen in the movie. Little Shop of Horrors opens with a drum roll that leads into the prologue music, followed by an iconic narration setting up the story. On the 23rd day of the month of September, in an early year of a decade not too long before our own, the human race suddenly encountered a deadly threat to its very existence. The opening gives off the vibes of a classic horror B-movie much like the one on which it was based. The style of music shifts into a 1960s-era number, and as the camera takes us through 16 different cues, we hear the voices of the Greek chorus that will lead us through the story. I love this beginning. Oh, yeah. It's so good. Yeah. (laughs) As we mentioned before, Frank Oz almost turned down this movie. In a 1986 LA Times article, he says, I didn't think I could get my hands around it. There were too many elements. It was a period piece. It was horror. It was comedy. There were 14 songs and a puppet that was going to weigh a ton. He was finally able to bury those worries and take a chance in the film. And one of the reasons he did so was because of the three muses, like we talked about earlier. Yeah. The singers bring the camera around the set, introducing the location and characters to the audience as they manage to stay dry during a rainstorm. They are the storytellers, which yes. means they're kind of immune to what's happening. Yes, so he's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They provide a type of visual exposition. Ending with our main character, Seymour. 
And throughout this whole number, the credits are rolling. And as as the number ends on Seymour in the flower shop, the last credit on screen is directed by Frank Oz. Mm -hmm. And Frank Oz made sure that his name would be on Seymour's ass. (laughs) <laughs> well in that shot yes. that final oh shot every yes. that I, I was i i was adamant my name needed to be right there on his butt <laughs> on rick moranis's ass yes <laughs> that's a very so it is. thing to do. <laughs> oh i know you imagine like you can hear him you can hear him saying it like, yeah. with, with his voice yeah they, right they, there they show right there on his butt <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good like really you want it here yeah yep perfect, perfect. <laughs> All right, next it leads into Skid Row, or Downtown. Skid Row is the first ensemble song and further introduces the setting and intentions of the characters. We hear the two leads, Seymour and Audrey, sing for the first time and learn more about their characters. Frank Oz planned Skid Row a year before shooting, and the actors knew exactly how many steps they needed to take during the song. I don't know if I could do that. You know, you're like singing yeah. and you have to pay attention. I mean, maybe I'm, they did it so many times. Yeah, lots that of it, rehearsals. It's probably yeah. a lot like being in marching band. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you got that many steps, the size of your steps, you know. Yeah. Measure it out. The chorus walks in an offbeat way on purpose to further drive home the uneasiness and discomfort of their lives. Yeah, they're kind mm-hmm. of zombie-esque. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The song ends with a medium shot of all the actors singing out toward the camera in a unifying moment. Frank Oz purposely kept the shot tight because he didn't want the number to feel grandiose. So this is this is the general I, part of a musical yeah. where people, you know, they all sing out together. You know, mm-hmm. they did this in an episode of How I Met Your Mother. They do it. Yeah, it's, it's very common. Yeah, you know, and and we've got the big ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. This wide shot. We see everybody. It looks really grand and spectacular. Yeah, this looks dirty. It's a tight shot, mm-hmm. uh, and that's just that's the whole point. Yeah, but there's also this nice moment where you see. Seymour and Audrey kind of not quite meeting at the corner. Yeah. One's on one side of the corner and one's on the other. And just, yeah, how they're just kind of on two different streets, essentially. It, yes. It's really interesting. They're on- seeing they're so close, but yet like so far. You yeah. Say. They don't yes. quite realize yet that they're both, they both want no. the same things. Yes. It's usually how it goes. Yeah. It? <laughs> yep. Next is Dadu. <laughs> Seymour introduces his boss, Mr. Mushnick, to a strange and interesting plant that he named after his co-worker and love interest, Audrey. Immediately after placing the small plant in the window, a man steps into the office to inquire about it. According to Frank Oz, Christopher Guest, who played the customer in this scene, would play the scene much too seriously. Finally, he gave an over-the-top performance, and that made it into the final cut. My sister first showed this movie to me, my sister Rachel, and I'm so glad she did because I love it so much. So, And I remember this was the scene that made me laugh. Yes. <laughs> it's so hard, yes. you know. Yes. He said, well, what if we put it in the window? People might wonder where we got this strange and interesting plant front cut, you know. <laughs> yeah. And he opens the door. Excuse me, I couldn't help noticing that strange and interesting plant. What is it? And his eyes look like they're about to pop out of his head. His eyes are so wide. They are freakishly (laughs) wide. In the song Dadu, Seymour explains that he discovered the plant during a total eclipse of the sun. 
The song features one of the only optical effects in the film, as a light shines around Audrey 2. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. this is when Audrey 2 transports from outer space. Yes. Yep. The next one is Grow For Me. After just one day, Audrey 2's presence has boosted business for Mr. Mushnick's flower shop. However, the plant seems to be wilting, and Seymour stays late to care for it. It's in this song that he discovers the plant's lust for blood. For this scene, only a couple people needed to operate the plant. When Seymour leaves the room, Audrey 2 breaks through its coffee can and grows. The special effects team achieved this effect by placing the plant behind the coffee can and just moving it closer to the camera to create the illusion that it was growing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice work. It's awesome. I love yes. I love looking at for that effect now because I could you could see it when you when yeah. you look for it. Yeah. They rubberized the can so mm-hmm. that you know it would you know they punch could, out the sides. Yeah. And then yeah, they just basically moved the plant closer to the screen. <laughs> And like so, slowly, like yeah, it just looks yeah, it just mm-hmm. looks like it's getting bigger, and I I love that. So mm-hmm. Audrey too seeks blood. Seymour knows this. Yes, and at first he's willing to give his own blood. Yeah. So this <laughs> this is the part where he should have just killed the plant. Yes. Oh, you require blood. Okay. Yes. You're done. Like oh my gosh, the plant died, Mister Mushnick. I'm so sorry. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. I tried. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the next song is Somewhere That's Green. This is one of those classic kind of I Want More songs. Yeah. This is a a beautiful song. It really showcases Ellen Green, who plays Audrey, and her vocal range. And Mm -hmm. she's a very good singer. In this song, Audrey reveals to the audience her true dreams of marrying Seymour and moving into a suburban home with a chain link fence. She highlights the luxurious lifestyle she pines for, taken straight from 1950s sitcoms. Yes. Yes. And up to this point, too, we know that she's dating some awful guy. Mm-hmm. Seymour's in love with her. He's like, oh, she should be with me. She obviously wants to be with him. Yeah. But she just thinks she doesn't deserve him. For this scene, Ellen Green wanted to make sure that she really felt at home before shooting and spent time in her on screen bedroom. The scenery for this song is an excellent example of how Frank Oz leaned into the theater and pushed the boundaries. This is the scene yes. where. The trees are literally painted onto the wall. Right. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. we are yeah. not meant to it's, think that that's real. It's an obvious set. Yes. They got fake flowers planted in the windowsill. Yes. They got, yeah. The scene is packed with visual jokes that, according to Frank Oz, test audiences reacted to even more than they had hoped. One such visual is an animated bird that lands in Audrey's hand, akin to Cinderella. This per- life is yeah. so ideal to her. So perfect. So perfect. Yeah, and it's just the just the life of TV dinners yeah. and, you know, plastic on furniture and Tupperware yeah. parties, you know. Two kids, one that looks like you, one that looks like your husband. <laughs> In order to get a real magazine that they liked for the shot, Frank Oz flipped through dozens of old magazines until he found a Better Homes and Gardens magazine that had the perfect imagery of homes and appliances that he was looking for. They use the magazine with permission from Better Homes and Gardens. And the magazine matches up with the lines of the song so well. Yeah. You know, when she says one thing that she wants and she turns the page and boom, there it is on the page. And it just shows you how accurate 
<laughs> the song is right. to to yeah. you know that time period and, mm-hmm. and it's a very sad song and in, in some in some aspects yeah. and it's a very funny song in other aspects and it's funny to us because we're used to these songs being about something much grander mm-hmm. and so this really shows us a lot about her character and her situation with the fact that her life is so difficult that all she really wants is just someone to love her and treat her well and to have a house. And I just, I love how well they were able to kind of just toe that line. When Howard Ashman wrote the screenplay, he expressed that he wanted a continuous shot from Audrey's room to the rooftop, leading seamlessly into the next song. To make that happen, Frank Oz needed to put two cranes on top of each other, as there didn't exist a crane tall enough to film the sequence. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, so like the song ends and we come out of the window and we just kind of go up to the left and we go keep going up and up and up and then we land on the women on the on the rooftop and they immediately yep. start singing the next song. Yep. Wow. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. a risky play right there. <laughs> <laughs> the next song we have uh, is what the three women sing next, which is some fun now. And they really do look like they're having the time they of their do. lives. I'm like, song. man, I want to be up there dancing with them. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere That's Green transitions to this next song, where the Greek chorus sings about the fun Seymour is having taking care of Audrey too. Obviously not. Not really. No. Yeah. They, sh- they show him bleeding his hands dry of blood. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Since the muses are at the top of the buildings, they are surrounded by billboard space. Oz hates product placement, so as an art director suggested that they use a product from the 50s that no longer existed for the billboard, hence the Choose billboard. This scene originally showed more footage of Seymour feeding Audrey too, but test audiences were squeamish, so Oz cut much of it out. I kind of don't blame him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cuz this one, I don't know, it feel like we mentioned before how absurd it is to have people be fed to this giant plant, right? Yeah. Yes. But for some reason, it basically sucking his hands dry. Yeah. Yeah. Is is more real? You know, at the size that Audrey 2 was at that time, mm-hmm. it's not completely out of the question. Like there are yeah. some big plants out yeah. there and some big carnivorous plants out there too mm-hmm. so it's not unheard of so it just feels kind of too real in that moment yeah yeah for sure uh the next song is dentist so we finally meet audrey's awful boyfriend right? yeah in this song we meet audrey's sadistic boyfriend a dentist played by steve martin yes the song opens with martin riding a motorcycle in front in front of a three-foot model composited onto a blue screen behind him. And I remember the first time watching this as a kid mm-hmm. when I was younger and, and Steve Martin having black hair confused the crap out of me. Oh. And I remember thinking like, what? Is this, That's not is this movie just really what? old? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who even is that? <laughs> Before Roy Walker built the set, Oz had counted out how many steps Martin needed to take while filming the number. The steps needed to match up perfectly with the music. Although he has one of the biggest roles of the celebrity cameos in the film, Martin was only on set for six weeks of shooting. Martin brought in a lot of hilarious ideas to the role and worked hard to avoid comparisons with characters like Fonzie. He did not want to be a Fonzie yeah. character. No. Right. Yeah. 
it was his idea when he first walks into the dentist office during this song and he takes off his jacket. He's got the white dental stuff underneath. Yeah. And he just punches his receptionist in the face <laughs> or his nurse. Yes. He just punches her in the face. And that was Steve Martin's idea. There was there was something else they were going to do instead. He goes, what if I just punch her? For one shot in the song, Lyle Conway created a gigantic human mouth for Steve to sing into while holding a huge dental tool to scale. Oh, boy. <laughs> but it was interesting. They said that they made it so that his motorcycle was even scared of him. Yes. Because he would, he would just like look at the motorcycle and it, it stops. Be, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's such a bad dude. So next we have a song that I'm sure many of you are big fans of. Mm. This one's called Feed Me <laughs> or Get It. After Seymour sees Audrey ride off with her abusive boyfriend, Audrey, too, speaks for the first time. I beg your pardon? Feed me! Tui, you talked! You, you opened your trap! You, you sing and you sing! Feed me, Club on! Feed me now! Uh, I can't! I'm starving! Look, maybe I can squeeze a little more out of this one. More! 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 more. There isn't any more! It tries to convince Seymour to kill people for plant food, offering him anything he could possibly want. This is the moment when he decides to make a deal with the devil. Yeah. Yeah. Because the plant couldn't move fast enough to sing along with Seymour, Rick Moranis, Rick was forced to film sequences in slow motion so they could later be sped up. When he's singing alone on screen, he's singing at a normal speed, and the film was 24 frames per second. When he's singing on screen with the plant, he's moving slowly and the speed is 16 frames per second. It was like this for every scene filmed with talking slash singing from Audrey 2. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he's doing this thing where he's just like, I don't know. And then when he steps into the frame with Audrey 2, he's going, I don't know. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, he was just mouthing the words. Mm -hmm. He wasn't right. actually singing. And that would drive me nuts. So he had to be so patient. Yeah. I can't imagine how hard yeah. that was. Because he also yeah. had to walk slowly. Mm -hmm. had to do all his mannerisms slowly. Yes. And it was literally depending on where he was standing mm -hmm. was how he would do. And so that means that they were doing several different takes. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Every time he did a scene with the plant. Yes. <laughs> do that. Yes. And Frank Oz praised him. He was like, yeah. Rick did yeah. such a good well job. Done. You would yeah. never know if no. we didn't tell you that. If yeah. we didn't just ruin the movie for I, you, yeah. you would never have known that. I yeah. had no idea until we did this. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, they're just, you know. Yeah, they built, a, yeah. They built yeah. Audrey Chu to Audrey, talk yeah. fast. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, yeah. Normal frame rate. <laughs> gosh. Oh, my gosh. Could you imagine? How dangerous that would be! Yeah. Oh my gosh! To have a yeah. machine going at the speed that's a good point because yeah, it always kind of did look a little bit unnatural. Yeah, you know, and I'm like, obviously, it's unnatural because it's a you know right. plant that eats people and right. is from yeah. outer space. Right, right. So I was like, it, it fits, but yeah, any kind of animatronic or or puppet that mm -hmm. Audrey Two is at that scale can be risky to yeah. be around. Imagine yeah. it flapping its mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it really could eat you. Yeah, it could, it could eat. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. You could be those mechanical legs. Yes, exactly. Oh, my gosh. 
Okay, so the next one we have is Suddenly Seymour. Oh my gosh. <laughs> After Audrey's boyfriend disappears, because obviously Seymour fed him to Audrey too. Right. <laughs> the plant successfully convinced Seymour yes. to kill the dentist and feed mm-hmm. him to, to the plant. However, he went in to kill him. You know, he brought the mm-hmm. gun, but then the dentist kind of overdoses on laughing gas and yeah. kind of suffocates. But I, I feel that Seymour could have saved him and mm-hmm. just decided right. he, not to. He may have he just not watched been dead. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. Audrey now is free to pursue a romantic relationship with Seymour. And suddenly Seymour toes the fine line between funny and sweet, as Howard Ashman meant for the song to be very tongue-in-cheek. Yet the characters are taking it very seriously. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> The imagery for the scene references Romeo and Juliet, which foreshadows a not-so-happy end for the two protagonists. Yeah. Right. Because remember, at this point, you know, when they, whenever they filmed this, they thought they were getting the original ending. Yes. Right. You know, the lots of Romeo and Juliet imagery on balconies. Yeah, and, and the fact that he runs up those steps to get to her. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the scene, the actors embrace with the sun behind them. The scene took about 36 takes, and they use the final take. Rick Moranis and Ellen Green both got lip burns from kissing. Uh, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, looking at that scene, yeah. they are smashing yeah. their faces together. Yeah, because it's not really a, like a... Yeah. A real kiss. No, it's like they. It's very close to like the 1940s yes. noir kissing, yeah. mm-hmm. where they would smash their faces <laughs> together and just like rub them really hard. Yeah. Why would you kiss like that? <laughs> yeah, imagine if you had braces. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Oh, tear but... it up. So the next song is "Supper Time." Ooh. Ooh. When Seymour cut up Orin, Audrey's boyfriend, he was spotted by his boss, Mr. Mushnick. Yeah, Mr. Mushnick saw it happen. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. In supper time, Mushnick confronts Seymour, threatening him with a gun. Ooh, bad choice. Yeah. Seymour has the option of leaving town, letting Mushnick take over the plant. But instead, he lets Audrey, too, eat his boss. Yeah. He doesn't push his boss into Audrey's No, he never touches his boss. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, he's definitely... Yeah. 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 He's definitely responsible. There's, yeah, there's definitely room for some arguing, though, as to whether or not, you know... If it really was about now that he's got Audrey, now he can just leave Mm -hmm. town, now he can start over, Mm -hmm. why doesn't he just do that? Yeah. But instead, he lets the plant eat him. Yeah. Which I want to know, what was he going to say? Because he was telling Mr. Mushnick, he was like, whatever you do, don't... Don't feed the plant, right? Yeah, don't... That was, that's the... <laughs> but I mean... It's all too late. Yeah. All too late. The scene is incredibly dark, but it's offset by the quick transition into the next song. This is a very dark moment, and it goes right into this very bright, <laughs> yeah. upbeat song. Mm-hmm. And I love... I love this intro to this song and, and like the talking, the talk singing kind of. Yeah. And that song is Meek Shall Inherit. After feeding two people to the plant, Seymour has found immense fame and success. But the plant wants more, of course. Mm. So the song's imagery was inspired by 
how to succeed in business without really trying. Yeah. <laughs> There's a shot with the, the muses and they're on their typewriters. Yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, he didn't really have to do much except, you know, no. basically sell his soul. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yep. that's, that's yep. not the I mean, nothing. That's, yeah. Dime a dozen. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Souls. We're approaching the final act yep. of, yeah. of the musical here. The last song that we're going to talk about is Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. Woo. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> In the theatrical release of the film, Seymour confronts Audrey too, just after the plant attempts to eat Audrey. There's this really incredible scene where the plant calls Audrey over. Audrey too gets a dime out of the cash register and calls Audrey over to the flower <laughs> shop, a take that took, they said it took 72 takes. Holy yeah. cow. To get that so right. So many. Just, yeah. Yeah, just to get that dime out of the register. Out of the register. Which, oh my gosh. And so Audrey comes over and they have a conversation and this is when the plant essentially eats her. You know, yeah. tries to. Yep. When Seymour comes in, her electronic legs are sticking out of <laughs> out of the plant's mouth. Yes. Obviously, they didn't have the actress in the plant's no, mouth. No, 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 no. <laughs> there are already, you know, people in the mouth. Yes, so. there, there wasn't enough room for it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. The scene escalates as Audrey 2 reveals that it, that it is a being from outer space here to take over the human race. It's clear that the plant is too powerful for Seymour to control, and he must destroy it. I'm not going to get away with this. Your kind never does. <laughs> I don't care what it takes. Only one of us gets out of here alive. This scene was shot in bits and pieces, but pieced together to create a cohesive musical number. At this point, the plant had 60 people operating it with giant levers and machinery. On set, the music was slowed down so the operators could mouth the words correctly with the song. The end of this scene is different in the original version of the film. But in the theatrical release, we see Seymour rise from the rubble of the flower shop and electrocute Audrey too. And that's how this mm -hmm. scene pretty much ends. And it's kind of how the movie ends. After Seymour defeats the plant, we see him and Audrey start their fairy tale life with another Audrey too not far away. Dun, dun, yeah. dun. It's a little, little ominous. The yes. End. Question mark. Yes. <laughs> the plant, you know, we see them start their beautiful life and mm -hmm. the plant is there just outside their yard. Yeah. Yep. Smiles at the camera. All right. So let's talk about the starring in this film. Rick Moranis is, of course, Seymour Krelborn. Rick was cast before they even knew he could sing. Geffen had Rick in mind for the role the entire time. He even saw Rick at a concert and told him that he would be the star of one of his movies someday. Aww. Oh, nice. That's really cool. I remember Frank Oz saying that, because, you know, he wanted Rick, and so did Geffen. Mm -hmm. And when he met with Rick Moranis, Rick said, hey, you know, just because everybody else wants me to do this doesn't mean you got to pick me. I mean, just... <laughs> You know, Aww. pick whoever you want. <laughs> Ever so humble. Good guy, Rick. Next, we have Ellen Green as Audrey. She's been in films like The Cooler and Talk Radio. She had performed Audrey on the off-off Broadway for four years, and David Geffen wanted her for the part because he knew she would be perfect. Interestingly enough, Warner Brothers had actually wanted Barbara Streisand for the role. Oh, interesting choice. Yeah. yeah. 
The three young girls that act as a Greek chorus or muses that lead us through the movie were Tisha Campbell as Chiffon. She was most notably also in Martin and My Wife and Kids. Tachina Arnold as Crystal. She's been in the main event and the Lena Baker story. And Michelle Weeks as Ronette. She has not been in much, but a TV movie called Norman's Corner. And each girl is named after a 1960s group, music yes. group. Oh, nice. The Chiffons, is, the Crystals, and the Ronettes. Yeah, yeah. Which is oh. super cool. Vincent Gardenia was Mr. Mushnick. I think it's hilarious that his last name is a flower, and I think it's very funny every time <laughs> I see it in the credits. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I didn't even, how did I not even notice that? <laughs> He's known for parts in Moonstruck, Death Wish, and more. Then we have Levi Stubbs as the voice of Audrey 2, mm. most well-known for his role as Audrey 2, as well as Captain N, the Game Master. Oh. Yeah, that's yeah. an indie cartoon. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know if it's an indie cartoon, but it is. Yeah. It didn't last long. Okay. He was a member of the Four Tops. Ah, uh-huh. yes. Then we have Steve Martin as Oren Scrivello, the dentist. Mm. A very popular comedian, of course. We all know him. Roxanne, yeah. Cheaper by the Dozen. The list goes on. Only murders in the building. Yes, only murders <laughs> in the building. Jim Belushi was Patrick Martin, the reporter guy at the end of the movie. Yeah. He is known for things like Red Heat, K-9, you know, and lots yeah. of different and things. And Jim Belushi is only in the theatrical release yes. of the movie. He is Correct. not in the original ending. Right. Mm-hmm. John Candy as Wink Wilkinson. He's a comedian that we just talked about in our John Hughes episode. We totally did. Right. Yeah. Frank Oz didn't want any ad-libbing, but he made exceptions for some of the comedic actors in the film. Like John Candy, who was known to be one of the best ad-libbers in the business. Yeah, he said that because it was based off of such beloved source material, mm-hmm. he didn't want ad-libbing in the movie. And then he just made an exception because John Candy just, he was so good I at mean, it. I mean, everybody made exceptions for John Candy. Yeah. I mean, you just yeah. let him do it. Basically, everything I've ever read about him, people are like, oh, God, yeah. Yeah. He really, don't give him a script. Just don't. tell him. <laughs> The basic idea of what's going on. <laughs> and he's got it. It's Wink. Well, you can't do this to me. What if your husband were to walk in? I'm right here, Wink. I'm sorry. I love your show, but I've got to kill you both with this machine gun. Oh, you got me. Oh, 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 oh. I feel, I feel so very weak. <laughs> Bill Murray as Arthur Denton, the masochist. He's well known, of course, for things like Ghostbusters. And when Bill Murray came in to do his role, he wasn't sure about the dialogue. So even though Steve Martin's lines are completely scripted, Bill Murray's weren't. Every take was different, and the men decided how to end the scene together. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, they said, basically, Frank Oz, he said, sometimes it's just like you just have to let them do their thing. Yep. And they kept working through it and trying to come up with different ways to end the scene. (laughs) And, you know, Frank Oz was just like, you know what? Let's just do a couple more. Whatever you guys want to do, we'll just, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you guys are almost there. You know? <laughs> Come with another one. Yeah. And this the whole time, Steve Martin is following the script exactly. And mm-hmm. Bill Murray is just making stuff up. <laughs> I went to a terrible dentist on Wednesday who was recommended to me by somebody that I saw on Monday, who's the brother of a man that I usually see on Sundays. 
Stanley Jones was the narrator. He's a voice actor most known for his roles as Scourge in the Transformers animated series and Lex Luthor in the Justice League animated series. So this movie has two endings. And so we're going to talk about the other ending of this movie. (laughs) So when the test audience saw Little Shop of Horrors, the screening went very well. That was until the end of the film. In the stage musical, Little Shop of Horrors, Seymour suffers greatly for his deeds when his true love dies at the hands of Audrey II. Seymour then feeds Audrey to Audrey II and gets eaten himself. Then the muses sing the finale, Don't Feed the Plants, which describes how Audrey II and its clippings spread across the country, eventually taking over. When he was adapting the screenplay, Howard Ashman felt it was important to keep the original ending. First of all, it drives home the message of the story. Secondly, fans of the musical might be disappointed if the film ends differently. Frank Oz was on Ashman's side and convinced David Geffen to let them shoot the ending that Ashman had written. Geffen told them from the beginning that it wouldn't work and that they would eventually need to change it. They went ahead anyway, hoping Geffen was wrong. I think it's really cool that he let them do it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that cost money, mm-hmm. right. it time. I f- yeah, I feel like a lot of people would have said, no, we're going to do it my way. We're yeah. going to do it the way that will make money, that will yeah. produce a good result that people will want. Frank Oz said in an Entertainment Weekly article in 2017 that, we screened the film the way Howard and I wanted it. The audience was clapping after every number. Then, when Seymour and Audrey died... They turned like an icebox. The reaction was so bad, Warner Brothers wasn't going to release it. When one dies in the theater, one dies and comes back for a curtain call. But in the movie, you don't come back for a curtain call. The audience was very angry. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) Yeah, so in this original ending, the plant kills Audrey, and she sings this absolutely beautiful, incredibly sad, version it's a reprise of somewhere that's green Mm -hmm. and she sings that and she dies Mm -hmm. and seymour kind of ritualistically (laughs) feeds her to the plant and then considers committing suicide Mm -hmm. and this is when we find out that a man has taken a clipping of audrey too and he's going to sell the plant and seymour runs down to confront confront Audrey too and this and this was the original way that Mean Green Mother started mm-hmm. in in the movie and so oh, that's how the plant spreads across the country and of course the plant wins and kills Seymour <laughs> yes right. at the end of at the end of Mean Green Mother mm-hmm. spitting out his glasses special effects artist Richard Conway developed a fantastic sequence of the plants taking over the US it was dark yet comical with groundbreaking visuals and incredible sound design it was essentially a minor monster movie, ending with a comically large, the end, as the plant covers the Statue of Liberty. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. It really, there's, there's this shot where the plant, one plant just puts its mouth at the end of a train track and a train just goes into its mouth. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, it, just prime stuff. I, right I mean, there. honestly, like, I laugh every time I see it. So, like, yeah. They didn't go full sad. No. You know, mm-hmm. it's comical. You know, yeah. it's, it's ridiculous. Only 13% of the test audience said they would recommend the film. So Oz and Ashman worked on a new ending and called back the actors for reshoots. Unfortunately, this also meant that Conway's effects wouldn't be seen by most audiences, 
which Frank Oz felt was the real tragedy. Yeah. It was incredible stuff. It was. And I I totally understand why he was upset about it. Yeah. Oz has said that he learned a very valuable lesson from the experience. While he prefers the original ending, and he knew Ashman did too, he understood that he wasn't making a movie for him. He was making it for millions of people. It's understandable. Yeah. That's going to be hard to let that Mm -hmm. go. And honestly, I don't know. I liked the original ending because... You know, there were consequences to his actions. Yeah. The visuals were really good. Mm-hmm. It was still kind of funny. It yeah. wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, just no. all doom and gloom and sad. Yeah. Obviously, the part where Seymour is slowly being pulled into Audrey's mouth, this extended scene, I could see why this really upset people. Yeah. You know, because Too they really- prolonged. Yeah. It became unfunny. Yes. Kind of, in that moment. Yeah, and and they really loved Audrey, mm-hmm. and she was this total innocent yeah. that yeah. died. I mean, yeah. she was wearing a white dress yeah. when she was eaten. <laughs> like, a picture of innocence. Right. Yeah. Just this complete, you know, the, you know, this innocent character. But the idea was obviously that, you know, something something bad needs to happen. Yeah. You can't feed people to a man-eating plant and mm-hmm. expect everything to go okay, you know? And so they were able to add that little, that little <laughs> bit of just, everything's not quite perfect at yeah. the end of the like, theatrical ending mm-hmm. yeah. where, the, where the plant looks at the camera and smiles. Because I know I've talked to my dad and he says that's his mm-hmm. favorite part of the movie. Yeah. Is at yep. the end, you know, it's not all okay. No. They didn't totally defeat the plant. Yeah. The plant is still there, and it, and I love, I love that about the the theatrical release because yeah. it is like, well, if it happened with Seymour, and Audrey too is out mm-hmm. there yeah. still, yeah, it'll happen again. Oh yeah, it'll happen to somebody else. Yep. Somebody else is mm-hmm. gonna do this, and so I do. I I like that both endings exist. I really do, and I re- I really enjoy both of them. Yeah, I see why people. If you're having a party, you yeah, you want to watch the theatrical you know, release. Yeah. I get or it. Or if you have kids yeah, that, that you yeah. allow to watch this. Yeah. So I, I like, think they're okay. both valid endings. Yeah. I, I, I really enjoy them both. Mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> well, the three of us obviously like this movie, but what about everybody else? Yeah. They all hate it. Yeah. Oh, obviously. <laughs> Not a single other person likes no, this movie. We're, just us three. we're all special we're, and different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the film grossed $39 million at the box office, which from the viewpoint of the studio was considered an underperformer. However, it became a smash hit upon its home video release in 1987. Roger Ebert said in his review, All of the wonders of Little Shop of Horrors are accomplished with an offhand, casual charm. This is the kind of movie that cults are made of. (laughs) (laughs) And after Little Shop finishes its first run, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see it develop as one of those movies that fans want to include in their lives. He was absolutely right. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Yeah, what a prophet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> the film was nominated for two Academy Awards, one for Best Visual Effects and one for Best Original Song for Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. That's such a great Ooh. song. Oh, yeah. The song was the first Oscar-nominated song to contain profanity in the lyrics and also the first to be sung by a villain. Dude, breaking down barriers. Yeah, look at that. The film was also nominated for Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy, 
and Best Original Score at the 44th Golden Globe Awards. Damn. Ah. All right. Nice. So it was a cult classic and kind of got some accolades. Yeah. Yeah. Not yes. bad. Yeah. Pretty good. All right. So now it's time for some little fun facts. Things we Ooh. couldn't find a place for anywhere else <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in this crazy uh, vine-filled episode. Heather Henson plays the distraught young dental patient with the headgear on. Aw, Heather. Yeah. The youngest Henson. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, her brother was in it, so. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <Why> not? <laughs> Pieces of Orin, the dentist's body, were created for Seymour to toss into Audrey II's mouth, including Steve Martin's severed head, dripping with blood. I wish there was a picture of that. I so Ugh. wanted a I picture wanna, of I that. I want to see what it looked like. I really, yeah. <laughs> This was deemed too graphic, and the pieces were used, but they were covered in newspapers, so the audience wouldn't see them. So the scene where Seymour is throwing body parts mm-hmm. into Audrey II's mouth, yeah. he's throwing them with newspaper, mm-hmm. yeah. and those are the bloody body parts that they made, Yeah. So, but they yeah. just wanted to cover it up because, you know. It's a bit much. Yeah. The film was originally going to be gorier. For example, there was supposed to be blood on the walls of the dentist's office. Yeah. Yikes, dude. (laughs) I'm glad they didn't do that. You know, it's okay. Yeah. If you watch the original ending, there's a scene where Seymour tries to commit suicide after Audrey dies. The scene has no musical score because it became clear that they would not use it in the final cut. One other thing about the ending, too, mm-hmm. was that the very, in the end of the theatrical release, they had to do a lots of reshoots. Yeah. Uh, and shooting that new scene, new scenes, to make the, make it work. And they couldn't bring all three girls back. Yes. For that final scene. Uh. So when Seymour and Audrey finally have their, their new life together, mm-hmm. and the girls walk by to just kind of essentially say goodbye mm-hmm. like at the end of the movie... Uh, just as you get to the third girl, the camera pans down and you don't see her face because she was a different actress. Oh, yes. Wow. Yeah. Smart, because you don't even think about you it. You don't even, you, you would it. never even consider You're it. You're like, oh yeah, it's just the third. Yeah. Third singer, but no. Yeah. Yeah. Give that. <laughs> it's tricky. Yes. Anyway, when Howard Ashman first had the idea to turn a B-horror film into a musical, it was because he wanted to make something fun. And boy, was he successful. Little Shop of Horrors is weird and wonderful with a solid story and killer musical numbers. Its lyrics are heartfelt and hilarious, and its performances are to die for. (laughs) It's been 40 years, and yet this film seems to get better every time we watch it. So if you're hungry for a good time, (laughs) turn on this treat of a film. It's supper time. Oh yeah! <laughs> oh, I'm so I was so excited to talk about this movie. I hope you guys really, yeah. Hope you guys enjoyed listening to us talk about it. Mostly just gush about it. But mm-hmm. I've had enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Well, I guess it's another case closed. Oh, we're so good at the clap now. Yeah, fire. <laughs> it sounded weird, but it's true. <laughs> we're all we're good at it. <laughs> anyway before we go we'd like to thank our patrons joel john jacob jacqueline jd anthony shelly linda bob carlos and jaren did i say your names too fast i'm sorry can you hear your name in that (laughs) you know who you are i won an award once for talking quickly so oh just in case yeah 
That's true. You can now buy us a popcorn at buymeacoffee.com slash blackcasediary. And thank you to all of you who support us, whether it be through listening, telling a friend, or donating. We really appreciate you. We You're do. the best. Yes, yes. very much. Thank you. you so much. Goodbye. Bye. Later. Don't feed the plants. And at his press conference today, President Kennedy fielded questions concerning last Thursday's total eclipse of the sun, an unprecedented technological phenomenon which has baffled the nation.